the chat. Amen. Encourage our, 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 our brothers and our sisters um, on the chat. Amen. All right, Elder Faith, go ahead and preach. Grace and peace be unto you. We good? Is the volume good? Yeah, we can hear. Yes, that. we're good. Okay. I have the first word from Luke 23, 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The word of forgiveness. For days, excited Jews from all over Palestine had crowded into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But on Friday morning, the city is greeted with startling news. Jesus of Nazareth is going to be crucified for treason. Jesus is now in the hands of the Roman soldiers who force him to carry a heavy wooden cross through the streets to a hill called Golgotha the place of the skull. As Jesus stumbles under the weight of his cross, the streets fill with a strange mixture of spectators and mourners, priests and Pharisees who demand Jesus' death, women weeping for the man who forgave sins and healed the sick, curious onlookers who only want to see the condemned man carry his cross. Two robbers are sentenced to crucifixion as well, but all of the attention is on Jesus. On the way, Jesus falls under the weight of the heavy cross. To keep the ugly procession moving, the Roman soldier sees a bystander, Simon of Cyrene, and order him to carry the cross for Jesus. It's about nine o'clock in the morning when Jesus and the two thieves reach Golgotha. The soldiers nail the son of God between the two thieves. Pilate's sign hangs over his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first saying of Jesus on the cross is traditionally called the word of forgiveness. Word, not in the sense of a single building block for a sentence, but word in the sense of something spoken. Word, a promise made. Word, a conversation had. Word, an oath taken. Here, nailed to the cross, the word that brought creation into being speaks a word for creation's redemption. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A word that Christ found important enough to speak out loud, even after being beaten, abused, flogged, and spit upon before being hoisted on a cross where it was hard to breathe, much less speak. But still, he speaks a word even in the midst of his agony, and that word was of forgiveness. He doesn't ask for it. He demands it of his father for you, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, for your family, for your friends. Father, Forgive them for they know not what they do. There are three types of forgiveness. One is exoneration, which is the action of officially absolving someone from blame, setting or declaring someone free from blame. Two, forbearance, which is patient self-control, 
restraint and tolerance, refraining from taking action. And third one is release, which means to allow or enable one to escape from confinement, set free from bondage, the bondage of sin. And there are three things that we had to be released from, the curse of the law, the guilt of sin, and the power of sin. Christ redeemed us and those Roman soldiers from each of these. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the guilt of sin. We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3, 24. And Christ redeemed us from the power of sin, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. There were many spectators of Jesus' crucifixion. There were priests, Pharisees, women, men, and children, but none were as unlikely to be changed by that event as the Roman soldiers. The Roman soldiers, these military men, their lives were immersed in violence. No doubt they had seen many, many criminals beaten, tortured, and crucified, just as Jesus was. To them, he was simply another criminal who deserved to die. On that day, they were just doing their jobs. They didn't know they were doing anything wrong. They thought they were doing what needed to be done. But that day, they did realize he was different. They were exonerated, and so were we. They were shown forbearance, and so were we. They were released, and so were we. These Roman soldiers were probably some of the same men who earlier mocked Jesus. Instead of fighting back or condemning them, Jesus prayed for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus chose to love instead of retaliating. We don't know what became of those soldiers or if their lives changed after that moment, but we do know that on that day, they faced the decision. After everything was said and done, they would have to decide what to do with Jesus. And they admitted, surely he was the son of God. Jesus forgave people who didn't know they were doing something wrong. He asked the heavenly father to forgive the men who crucified him. They didn't know they were hurting the son of God. Jesus forgives people because he loves them. The soldier's story shows us that Jesus interrupts our routines and changes our minds. He gets in our way and directs our paths. He pricks our hearts and smooths our rough edges. In the midst of performing their jobs as torturers and guards, the presence of Jesus affected the soldiers. Just like the soldiers, when God gets involved in our lives, we're forced to make a decision. What will we do with Jesus? What are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with the promise made, the word? What are we going to do with the conversation had, the word? What are we going to do with the oath taken, the word? He loves us. He is patient with us. He has exonerated us. He has released us, but what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with the word? Thank God he didn't do with us what we deserved. Thank God for the word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Amen, praise the Lord. 
Um, I'm going to be coming from Luke 23, verses 39 through 43. The word of God says, one of the criminals hanging alongside cursed him. Some Messiah you are, save yourself, save us. But the other one made him shut up. Have you no fear of God? You're getting the same as him. We deserve this, but not him. He deserved nothing to deserve. He did nothing to deserve this. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He said, don't worry, I will. Today you will join me in paradise. I want to preach from the topic, last minute mercy. Uh, mercy is described to be God's compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is in with his power to punch or harm. The word mercy deri derives from the medieval Latin word, merced or merces, which means price paid. It has the connotation of forgiveness, benevolence, and kindness. I don't know about you, but when I read that definition during the preparation of this message, I couldn't help but to begin to thank God for the many times I should have paid for the price, paid the price for the things I did. And the truth be told, we actually deserve to be punched. Uh, we because we knew better. Uh, we deserve the consequences of our flesh, but God and his mercy saw fit to give us another chance. Somebody put in the comments and say, Lord, have mercy. Uh, in our text, we are currently processing the cruel uh, and brutal crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he is innocently hung on the cross and he's innocently situated between guilty and guilty. He is innocently in physical pain and innocently fulfilling prophecy. He's gone from being physically abused uh, to being emotionally abused, to being mentally abused, to being spiritually abused. Think it not strange, uh, the fact that he was between two thieves. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 12, that he was numbered with the transgressors. Therefore, he was simply fulfilling prophecy. Uh, and we learned in our text, uh, well, in our text, we learned that Jesus's neighbor, neighbors had two separate mindsets of him. Even though they were close, they were in close proximity to Jesus, one of them did not recognize and believe in who he was and who he is. He was the very person that could change his final destination. And instead of taking a chance, he instead joined the bandwagon. And then on the other side, we have the other criminal who recognized that there was something different about this man that they called Jesus. He realized that there was something radiant to him. He, he realized that even though Jesus's physical body was beaten and broken, that he was still yet the answer to their salvation. Uh, this thief understood that he had a divine deadline that he had to meet. I can only imagine the things that were not recorded in this, in this book. As I started to imagine this particular thief on the cross, blood running down his body, he's on the cross in intense pain, but even in intense pain, he had faith. He had faith and he was next to the Messiah. See, when you link faith and Jesus together, something has to happen. Uh, when you link faith and Jesus together, things begin to start begin to start to shake and in the earth realm and in the spiritual realm. Though Jesus' physical man was weak, his spirit man was strong. And 
is strong and forever will be strong. Jesus had only a few more moments left in his physical body. And even at the last minute, Jesus was working. Last minute is defined as the time preceding a deadline or when some decisive action must be taken. This thief asked Jesus if he could remember him when he enters the kingdom. He didn't ask for a special place at all. All he asked was for a ticket. And Jesus gave him just that. This particular part of the story, I got a, I got a revelation, y'all. Uh, this, this thief was in close proximity, proximity of Jesus. He knew of Jesus, but his salvation was not guaranteed. Towards the end of the thief's life, of, of the thief's life, as he was on the cross, he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah but he didn't receive salvation until he opened his mouth and asked for it. Just because you come to, to church, just because you come to the house of God on a Sunday to Sunday basis does not guarantee your salvation. Just because you know of Jesus does not guarantee your salvation. Some of us need a salvation check and have a conversation with the Lord to see where is your ticket taking you? Where's your ticket taking you? We're living in a time frame where all we need is last minute mercy. After years of yielding to our flesh, months of being messy, days of making dumb mistakes, hours of raising hell, moments of being moody, seconds of being sinful, we can all agree that we need specific mercy that's going to suit our specific case. And because the truth be told, we all have we all have been in some situations where it should have been a fourth cross with us on it. Uh, Y'all not going to talk back to me in these Catholic comments. Uh, one thing I like about the second thief is that he had to check the first thief and let him know who he was speaking to. He had to let him know that he was talking to the Messiah. Even though he did not know the Messiah, he still respected the presence of the Messiah. He may not even have known everything that Jesus did or could do, but one thing he did know is that there was another thing, another side to this thing called life. And that's what God is looking for. Who's willing to speak up on his behalf? Who's willing to let others know that there is a soon coming Messiah? Who's willing to speak up and let somebody know that there is a King of Kings and that there is a Lord of Lords. There is a God that sits high and looks low. Who's willing to speak up and let somebody know that there is someone that sits on the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. Before Jesus took his last breath, because the thief spoke up, God redirected his resting place. He was guilty, but he was on his way to glory. Your destination is locked up in your tongue. Do you know that sometimes you could be one request away from getting to your destiny? Even at the last minute, you could shift your whole destination. Always take advantage of an opportunity to open up your mouth and talk to God, whether it's prayer, because we realize that prayer touches God and God touches our situation, whether it's praise we should realize that praise touches god and god begins to incline his ear whether it's worship worship touches god and god begins to work it out on our behalf whether it's honor honor moves god and god moves on our behalf 
even at the last minute. So I just came to let somebody know that there is power in the la in last minute mercy. Yes, you didn't dot every I. Yes, you did not cross every T, but thank God for last minute mercy. Yes, you knew better. You could have done better. You should have done better, but God, but we ought to thank God for last minute mercy. Yes, you probably didn't excel to the best of your ability, but we ought to thank God for last minute mercy. Yes, it may have felt good, looked good, and even sound good, but don't go back and thank God for his last minute mercy. Yes, you may have fallen by the wayside, even fell from God's grace, but you ought to thank God for last minute mercy. It's because of his mercies that we're not consumed. Great is God's faithfulness. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Woo, glory to God. This has been great. Man, we are definitely off to a good start and lifting up the name of Jesus and hearing great words. And so now we're on to our third word, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Elder Sandy Wright is coming with a, uh, a preach word, the next word, and then we're going to hear from Minister Marquita Barker. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Amen. Receive them as they come. Praise the Lord, everybody. The third saying from the cross, as recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, 26 and 27. Woman, behold your son. Who can grasp the grief? The grief of Mary watching her son suffer. The grief of Mary watching him die. I can only imagine that as the Roman soldier hammered iron into her son's flesh, she felt her body also tear. Her agony mirrored his, and her emotional anguish pierced so deeply it felt physical. She sank to the ground. Her son, her precious son, he hung there naked, bloody, barely recognizable. But she still saw the newborn she nursed through long nights. The toddler who'd taken his first steps, the boy about his father's business, the man who turned water into wine. I'm sure she must have wondered, couldn't there have been another way? She knew what he must do, but grief was a flood that threatened to drown her. The brutality of her son's experience was too much to comprehend. But then, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Though Jesus gasped for breath, pushing himself up on his nail-pierced feet, to allow his lungs to expand, his compassions, as the hymn says, they failed not. In the midst of excruciating pain, Jesus took care of his mother. His suffering was not only for Mary. The promised son bore the sins of the world and suffered so we would live. 
He bled and died so we would not. And in his darkest hour, he meets the needs of others. The thief hanging beside him and his own mother. Amid the incomprehensible pain of crucifixion and even the greater agony of being separated from the father, he gave focus attention to her. His provision for Mary was precise. Jesus knew that he was no longer going to be her earthly son, but rather her crucified king and savior. So he gave her a new son. Mary, a widow in her own in her 40s or 50, would have had little ability to meet her own financial needs. But by saying, this is your son, rather than this is your caregiver, Jesus provided family. He gave her someone who would not only provide for her, but cherish her. Jesus took care of Mary. And he takes care of you and I. John's response to Jesus was simple. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home. He obeyed Jesus' instruction and cared for her as he would his own mother. Here we see how the church is to care for one another. Our care for one another flows out of his care for us. And in the middle of this tender moment, something bigger was happening. Jesus oriented the family. At the cross, Jesus hints at what he intends for the church. When we become believers, we have a spiritual connection forged by Christ. And we're invited to see ourselves in this new family, that is to meet the needs and show the tangible love and compassion we would give to blood relatives. In this beautiful gospel moment, Jesus's care for Mary equips our love and compassion for each other. The Lord left this example on record before he completed his assignment on earth to remind us that love must be demonstrated between the believers. Jesus said in John 15 and 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He loves us and he commands us to love one another exactly the way he loves us. The very reason that Jesus was crucified on the cross was because the father so loved the world that he gave his son to die for us and to pay the ransom for our sins in order to redeem us back to him. We were bought with a price and that price is the precious blood of Jesus. And he paid it willingly all because he loved us. John 13 and 35 says by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. If you have loved one to another, that's how they're going to know that we belong to him. We've got to demonstrate love. 
glory to God, the world will know we belong to God because we love one another and we demonstrate our love. We give to the poor. We visit those that are in prison. We care for the fatherless. We see about the widows. According to John 1 and 3, 1, 3 and 17, if we have enough money to live well and we see our brothers or sisters in need, but we show no compassion, the scripture records a question. How then can the love of God dwell on the inside of us? How then can the love of God dwell on the inside of us and we shut up the compassion? As believers and followers of Christ, if it's in our means to help, we help one another. We consider one another. One another. We demonstrate our love to one another. But how will they know? How will they know? How will the unbelievers know that we belong to God? How will they know that we're set apart to be used for his glory? How will they know that we are the light of the world, the city that sits on a hill that cannot be healed? How will they know that we are the sight of the salt of the earth if we don't have love? If we don't have love one for another, how will they know everything that God did for us was motivated by love? First John 4 and 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth knoweth God and is born of God because God is love. Relationships, my brothers and my sisters, are good. But loving relationships demonstrated within the body of Christ is the will of the Father. And as you look around this room on today, behold your mother, behold your sister, behold your brother, beloved. Let us love one another. Amen. 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 The fourth word from the cross is founded in both the Gospel of Matthew, the 27th chapter, and the 46th verse, as well as Mark, the 15th chapter, 34th verse, stating, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And from this portion of scripture, my title is, in the middle of it. When Jesus utters these words from the cross, we come to one of the most heartbreaking moments of our Lord's passion, but also an enlightening moment. It is here that we can see the humanity of Christ. Christ seems to express and experience in his human nature the pain of separation from God, the, his father. Even as we're hearing the last words that Jesus uttered on the cross, we see that Jesus begins by using the word father and he in the first word, and he ends the seventh word by saying father. But in the middle of it is the fourth word. And here Jesus transitions from saying father to now saying my God. Jesus doesn't use the intimate term Abba or father, but he continues 
he continues to cry out to the Lord. Sorry, my screen went out, so I apologize. But he continues to cry out to God. Jesus knew that God could not look on sin. Indeed, sin has its deadly consequences and sin must be punished. For the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The eternal bond which knit together the father and son was temporarily severed for the first time. And it was at that ninth hour of the day and for three of the deepest and darkest hours of history, Jesus, the beloved and anointed son of God hung on the cross as our kinsman redeemer, paying the price in full for our sins. Imagine what it must have been like for Jesus. Just think about it. Jesus had endured being despised and rejected by men. He was betrayed by one of his very own disciples. He was arraigned before the spiritual and secular courts. He was flogged with a whip that tore the flesh off his bones and he was beaten beyond recognition. He was robed in mockery and then unrobed in shame. He dragged his cross through the streets of Jerusalem which was now covered with his blood. He was nailed to the cross and hung up for all to see. He died on the cross. He gave his life for you and for me. His own disciples who swore their allegiance to him had deserted him and he was despised by those he loved and rejected by those he came to save. Jesus was in the middle of it. You may wonder what does in the middle of it mean? In the middle of it means fulfilling the purpose that God had for him. In the middle of it means for us, the situation that you're going through, the trials and the tribulations that you're dealing with, that you're struggling with, and you're in the middle of it, you're in the thick of things. Jesus was in the middle of fulfilling his heavenly assignment. He was fulfilling the will of the Father. The Bible tells us in John 1:29, Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of this world. Luke 19 and 10 says he came to seek and to save what was lost. And Mark 10:45 stated that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was in the middle of it all. And now he's at a place where darkness has settled over the whole land and he feels forsaken by his father. That word forsaken means to abandon or turn away from. Elder Shirley once preached that when she was going through something, she asked God, just give me five minutes. I may not respond how you want me to respond, but just give me five minutes. I believe after all Jesus was going through, he was entitled to take his five minutes. Can you relate to that? Have you ever gone through some test, some trial, some turmoil in your life? And even though you're praying, even though you're holding fast to what God has told you, even though you're still waiting on God's miracle, even though you're waiting for that deliverance, even though you're waiting for him to work it out and you're still praying, but you feel as though God is silent. 
and you wonder, God, are you still there? Do you hear my cries? How long must I be in this place? How long must I go through this dead situation? When you feel that God is silent, that is the time to push further to get into his presence. Because what you need, only he can give it to you. Just because you're in the middle of it doesn't mean that you're defeated. But you still got to go through the process. So don't give up because that's what the enemy wants you to do. Don't give in to those doubts that creep up. Don't think that just because you haven't seen the promise come to fruition that it's dead for you. The enemy wants you to think that you had it, that you're through. If God hasn't delivered you from that situation, then it's not going to happen. But how many of you know that even when God is silent, he is still moving. He is still working things out on our behalf. You may not see it with your natural eyes, but God sees the whole picture. We may not always know why he does what he does or why he allows the things that he does to happen, but we've got to trust the process, no matter how hard it gets and use this trial as an opportunity to draw ourselves closer to him. Get closer in prayer, get closer through praise and worship, get closer through reading the word of God. Get closer by repenting of those things that are standing between you and God. And get closer by surrounding yourselves with believers that can encourage and pray for you. Just know that whatever you're going through, whatever you're in the middle of, God has not forsaken you. Because Jesus paid the price on Calvary's cross so that we might be saved and have life and have it more abundantly through him. Saints, stand strong in your faith. Stand strong in the power of his word and declare, I might be in the middle of it, but I know that victory is mine. God bless you. Amen. I have the fifth word, I thirst. John 19, 28. This is the King James Version. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. And the New Living Translation says, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished, and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. How thirsty are you? How thirsty are you? If we were in the sanctuary, I might say, look at your neighbor and add him. How thirsty are you? But since we're online, you can just put in the chat, how thirsty are you? Don't worry, it's just a rhetorical question. I don't expect anybody to answer because you don't know where I'm going with this. If I were to say in Matthew 5, 6, it says, blessed are they, do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Then I might get some people to say, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsty, because we all want to be blessed and we all want to be filled. How many know that being thirsty from, for righteousness requires sacrifice? 
It requires a sacrifice of time. It requires self-sacrifice. It requires endurance. And it even requires some pain. Because when we're striving and we're, we're thirsty for the righteousness of God, it's not easy sometimes. And we go through some things. So I ask you again, how thirsty are you? Have you ever been thirsty? I mean, really thirsty to the point that your body wasn't even producing saliva. Have you ever been so thirsty that you couldn't even lift your tongue from its resting place? So thirsty that you couldn't even swallow. Have you ever been so thirsty? If you ever been that thirsty, then you know all you want is something to quench your thirst. And when I say quench, I mean to relieve or to satisfy. You're so thirsty that your body begins to crave something wet. All you want is to satisfy that physical need. You need a thirst quencher. I had the privilege of helping care for an individual that was at the end of her life. As she began to transition, there came a time when the body wasn't producing saliva. And even though I watched the process, I really didn't realize how thirsty the person had become. The nurses said, put ointment on her lips to keep them moistened so they won't crack and swab her mouth to keep it clean and supplies to supply some moisture to it. They give you this little plastic stick with a little swab on the end of it that you dip into water to clean the individual's mouth and to give some moisture. Then there came a time one day when I was swabbing the individual's mouth and she began to actually suck on the sponge, trying to get whatever moisture, whatever liquid she can get from the sponge. She was trying to satisfy her need for something wet, trying to quench her physical thirst. And it was at that time when I realized how thirsty she had become. But because she couldn't get enough liquid from that, from that little sponge to satisfy her thirst, I had to keep replenishing her over and over again. It was just a temporary fix. What she needed was the thirst quencher. You might say this is sounds it's graphic, but Jesus' death on the cross was graphic. He actually thirsted. But how many know there comes there will come a time in our, our life that the physical thirst can only be satisfied with a spiritual fix. We don't need something that's temporary. We need something that's everlasting. There will come a time in your hunger and thirst for righteousness that you will need to be replenished. That refreshing that you got before, it's not keeping you satisfied now. Are you still thirsty for the things of God? 
Or have you begun to satisfy your hunger and thirst with the things of the world? How many know that physical thirst? It requires a spiritual need. You need Jesus, the thirst quencher. Jesus can relieve, he can satisfy any thirst, any hunger, any need, and it's not a temporary fix. But you have to endure till the end. Jesus endured to the end. Here in the scripture, we Jesus is he's hanging been hanging on the cross for hours. I can just imagine that his lips had become so dry and chapped from lack of moisture that they begin to crack. They begin to bleed. His tongue so dry that it felt like he had cotton in his mouth, so heavy that he could barely lift it from his resting place. I can just imagine that it took all he had just to speak the words, I thirst, I thirst. There was no one to put ointment on his lips to keep him from cracking. No one to swab his mouth to give him moisture and to keep it clean. I wonder how thirsty he had physically become. He was God, but he was man. He felt the lashes that he received when he was beaten. He felt every nail that entered his hand. He felt the, the sword that entered his flesh. He felt the pain and the anguish of being crucified. And he experienced thirst. His body longing for something refreshing, longing for something to quench that dryness that was going on within him. Yet, he stayed on the cross. John 19, 28 says, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saying, I thirst. He didn't utter those words, I thirst, until all things were accomplished, until his mission was complete. We see the sacrifice, we see the self-denial of Jesus. He wouldn't say the words, I thirst, until he had completed each step recorded in the scripture. That just lets us know that his, his word is true. His word is true and he's gonna do what he says he's gonna do. Jesus didn't quit when things got rough. He's bad. We, we, we serve an awesome God. He can do anything. He could have caused it to rain. He could have just spoke and caused it to rain and just opened his mouth and received it. But he didn't. He went through the hurt. He went through the pain. He went through the anguish. He endured it all until his mission was completed. His mission was to die for the sins of the world. But his desire was to do his father's will. How thirsty are you? Is it your desire to still do your father's will? Are we still thirsting after and hunger at hungering after 
the righteousness of God? Have we replaced God's will with our will? How thirsty are you? There will come times in, in uh, our thirst after righteousness that things will get rough, things will get tough, and they may even get hard to handle. But don't give up on your assignment. Complete the mission. Complete the, the task that God has set before us. Don't quit. It's easy to quote, quote scripture, but sometimes it's hard to live the scripture. Jesus lived the scripture. Jesus was the word. Jesus lived the word. Are we living the word? Are we thirsty and hunger, hungering after righteousness? Or are we just quoting scripture? How thirsty are you? No one can answer that question but you. But we have to be thirsty enough to know that the only one that can quench that thirst is Jesus. He's the only one that can relieve. He's the only one that can satisfy your every need. John 7, 37 says, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. It's time to drink from the well that never runs dry. I'll leave you with this. I hear people say, the younger uh, people say, I'm thirsty or you thirsty, you so thirsty. To the point that I finally asked some of my family members in their early 40s. What does this term mean? I'm thirsty. You so thirsty. And all three of them said, basically said the same thing. It meant chasing aggressively after somebody of the opposite sex. Well, I say to you today, it's time for us to, to be thirsty, but thirsty for Jesus. Thirsty for the man, not a man, thirsty for the man that can part the Red Sea, thirsty for the man that can heal disease, thirsty for the man that can open blind eyes, thirsty for the man that can heal disease and, and make uh, the lame walk, thirsty for the man that can quench every thirst, every desire, every need, thirsty for the man, the thirst quencher. Jesus Christ. So I ask you again, how thirsty are you? God bless you. Amen. Amen. I have the seventh word, John 19 and 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. And I would like to preach from the subject, paid in full. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus announces that he has come to accomplish God's mission among men. It's finished. What's finished? For Pilate and the government officials, having Jesus finished over and done with was a relief. It was trouble enough to try to rule a group of, uh, rule over a group of people with a culture totally unlike Rome. During Passover, one had to anticipate the, the possibility of demonstrations. 
An uprising would bring nothing but bad press to Rome, and the ambitious Pilate didn't need another problem. Having Jesus finished, even at the risk of setting Barabbas free, would be a relief. Finished for the religious leaders was a necessity if they intended to maintain control and power. Jesus was offensive to them, and having all those Jews following him was a threat. They wanted to return to business as usual. Finished for the disciples was the end of a dream. For all the times Jesus had taken charge in these days or told them he was going to leave them, they chose not to believe him. Then shocked by the dangerous realities of his arrest, trial, and crucifixion, the disciples cowered in the darkness. They had lost courage and had run away at the last moment. Their loss was more than flesh and blood. With Jesus, with Jesus went their hope and political victory. Everything was ruined, wrecked for the disciples. The struggle was lost. Darkness had won. It was finished. It's finished. For Jesus, could this have meant the end that he had given up? That the enemy and everyone else who hated him had finally won? No. Instead, its finish was a cry of victory. All that he was sent to do was accomplished. God would be glorified. Our sins was destroyed. The opportunity for us to have everlasting righteousness of Christ appointed to us was opened up. We no longer had to sacrifice animals to be, get, to be forgiven, but we can go to God in prayer. Imagine the feeling Jesus had. Although he was dying, he was finally fulfilling what his father had sent him to do, save his people from sin. Can you remember the feeling you had? We all are trying to pay off debt and be debt free. But can you remember the feeling you had when you made the final payment on that credit card? You made payment after payment and it seemed like it never really went down. Or how about that car note? that no matter how much extra you sent, the balance stayed the same, but now they're paid in full. What about that suit? Now, back in the day, we put stuff on layaway. I don't know if they have layaway anymore, but that suit you wanted that wasn't right in your budget right then and there, but you put it on layaway and you made payment after payment until you finally got it out. Remember that feeling? Or that bill that was so high, you had to schedule a payment plan. You know the plan, that little extra that you had to send with the regular payment in order to get back on track and on date. And what about that home project you started? And each week you put a little time in it and the feeling you had when it was completed. You felt a sense of accomplishment. When Jesus uttered the words, it's finished, our debt was paid in full. You see, Jesus underwent his own payment plan to pay it to be paid in full. He had a credit card to pay off my sins. He had a car note to pay off your sins. He had a suit to get out of layaway, our sins. But mostly, he had a home project to get done, the glorification of the Father. Each time they swung that flesh hook was a payment. The crown of thorns on his head was a payment. 
The carrying of the cross was a payment. The nails in his hands and his feet was a payment. And the utterance of the words, it's finished, was the cry of victory. The final payment was made. We are all caught up and we are now paid in full. God bless. Wow. Paid in full. Oh, my goodness. All right. Y'all are bringing it tonight. Man, I am blessed. I am blessed. Are you blessed, uh, Overseer? Yes, I am. It's, oh, uh, my goodness. Listen, I thought I would struggle a little bit, you know, uh, being at home and, and, and listening and watching virtually. But no, everybody has been on point. Everybody's been on fire. This is, and we had a good time this afternoon. I was with Bishop Hargrove at CCU, uh, and um, there were three churches and a, a, a triune of preachers from me or from each church, and they did a phenomenal job today. But we're we're uh, we're right there with them because the word is hot tonight. Yeah, the word is yes. on fire. Everybody's doing a phenomenal job, and they're sticking to their seven minutes. <laughs> they're being disciplined discipline is a part of ministry yes my goodness i am i am i am blessed you know sometimes uh um uh overseer it's a truth be told you know sometimes people be uh, preaching and, and sometimes your mom may wonder a little oh, yeah. bit you know? <laughs> hey look my just mom so wonders just... while i'm preaching <laughs> <laughs> I'd snap back sometimes. Oh, where are you going? <laughs> come back, come back. Come well, back. That's what? right. I come back. To, I did not have to wonder. My mind didn't wonder at all. No. Amen. On tonight. Okay. You guys, great job, uh, everybody. You, you all are great, great preachers. Your mm -hmm. preachers, you are definitely bringing it on tonight. And we are so thankful to God for you all and the way that you have prepared and studied. And so we are coming to the last word. Now I did overseer. I told um, Elder Charles since he's he's uh, he's closing. I told him he can have three extra minutes. Okay, all right. I, I got you know I've been timing three. everybody. I got my timer going. <laughs> Listen, I, I was I was at a ceremony before where you were timing people. So yeah, you had yeah time time him and let him know. Listen, you yes, had two minutes. I, I remember. And you went three well, minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Right, see, I um I listen. Amen. I no, listen you were to on you. Point. I'm, I'm a rule follower. Yeah, you you were on point on that at that particular day at that particular event. Uh, matter of fact, I think you had a minute extra minute to go. You mm -hmm. went a minute under what That's you were right. granted. <laughs> That's right. I follow the rules. Amen. So. <laughs> Elder Charles, I gave him 10 minutes, amen, because he's going to bring it home for us. Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Come on, Elder Charles, preach the word. Father, to thy hands, I commit my spirit. Christ is the constant example of how to walk in our Christian journey. Prior to the cross, Christ showed us how to live and be in relationship with the Father, to depend on him, to trust in him, to love, to love and obey him. And while at Calvary on the cross in the previous six sayings, he showed us how to suffer. Uh, my mother sings a song uh, called When I See Jesus. And some of the words says, I've learned to live holy and I've learned to live right. But if I suffer, I'll gain eternal life. And here in Luke 23, 46, the seventh, uh, the seventh saying, Christ demonstrates how to suffer and in turn makes a pathway for us to gain eternal life. Uh, and I'm speaking from the subject this uh, evening from 
with an example, with an example. Uh, how many of you know that words are important, but how you say something is just as important? Back in the day, we used to say something uh, called holler if you hear me. Jesus was hollering so that people could hear him. He wanted people to know that he was getting ready to take his victory lap. He was having his curtain call. He wanted everyone to know that he was the son of God, that he was Jesus the Christ, that he was the Messiah. Uh, when, you, when he hollered, that was his solemn dismissal of his spirit when he committed it to his father. Christ had already said goodbye to pain. He had said goodbye to suffering. He said goodbye to his body. He was saying goodbye to the world. And now when Christ said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, this was his hello to heaven. This was his hello to being the savior of man. This was his hello to being the redeemer of man. And this is critical because Christ is demonstrating that after this life is over, after we've done all that God has purposed us to do, there is going to be a God is going to call our name and there's going to be a separation from the spirit and from the body. And I don't know about you, but once my spirit is separated from my body, you can do whatever you want to my body. You can beat it. You can drag it. You can kick it. It doesn't matter because I'm the, it, it was only a shell. It was only temporary. But my spirit, my spirit is eternal. And I want my spirit to rest in the hands of God. I hope, hope somebody say amen in the chat line right there. Jesus uh, was speaking with a loud voice because he was sending a message. He was sending a message that he had victory. Jesus let his enemies know that he obtained the victory. And, and, and in spite of what they tried to do to him, in, in spite of the beatings, in spite of the, 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 the thorn of uh, the crown of thorns being placed on his head, in spite of all that, this was not nothing new that God didn't know was going to happen already because he knew that Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And when Christ was slain, he got victory, and his victory was the enemy's defeat. And what did he get in victory? When Christ got in victory, he was able to purchase us through grace and mercy. He purchased grace and mercy for all of his people. He purchased grace and mercy for the drug addict. He purchased grace and mercy for the alcoholic. He purchased grace and mercy for the, for the murderer, for the liar, for the adulterer. And because Christ was victorious, we now too are victorious in him. Christ uh, spoke with a loud voice so his disciples knew that, um, that he laid down his life voluntarily and that he did not get, uh, that they could not take his life, but he had to give up his life. Uh, Christ was 100% man, but 100% God, and he controlled his own destiny. This, uh, Christ was the example, so this, so, so this should be a lesson to us. You can't have what I'm not willing to give up. The lesson to us is that you can't have what I'm not willing to give up. It don't matter what I'm going through. I'm not willing to give up my relationship with God. It don't matter what it looks like. I'm not willing to give up my praise. It don't matter how bad the obstacles may seem. I'm not giving up my worship. It's because of my, my praise that, I'm, that I was able to get up this morning. It's because of my relationship. I'm not in a mental institution. It's because of my worship that I can get up and face tomorrow. I'm not willing to give up my relationship, my praise, or my worship. Christ on the, on the cross, when he called his father, he was reestablishing the relationship. Uh, you heard Minister Marquita talk about in, in a fourth saying in Mark, uh, saying that Jesus cried out, but God, but at the time he called uh, God Eli, which was so impersonal. And it was a time that there was no connection to the father. The connection had been broken. But what Christ is saying now is I'm calling out so that way uh, I can reestablish the relationship. Now he calls him father because he wants him to know that the relationship is getting ready to be intact. Christ was the example. So let this be the lesson. When you find yourself in a dark place, when you find yourself feeling all alone, when you think Christ has turned his back on you, Christ called on God, but we ought to call on the name of Jesus Christ, the name that is above all names, the name that, that, that is higher than, than anything else. 
uh, I don't know about you, but uh, when I get, when my back is up against the wall, we call on the name of Jesus. He can make everything all right. He said, into thy hands, I commend my spirit or I entrust my spirit to you. For Christ to take his rest, he had to complete his assignment. And that was for, for God to receive his soul in the parting of our sins. The word of God tells us in Isaiah 53 and 10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, him being Christ. He had put him, Christ, to grief when the Lord shall make him, him being Christ, his soul an offering for sin. Christ not only underwent death, but the conscious act of dying. Christ knew that he was going to die. And in respect, and in this respect, all of us should uh, use this as, a, as an example and a lesson on how we should follow his step. Let's look at how he approached death. His words show nothing of agitation or anxiety. His words exude a calm stillness of the soul. They begin with the word father. Father, which all along has been a name or a source of strength. Uh, uh, father, uh, the name that has all along been a source of peace. His words begin with something familiar to him. How many of you know that when you're going through something, you revert back to what you know? You revert back to your bedrock. You revert back to what you are comfortable with. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't know about you but, or, or who you're calling on when you're going through something, but I'm asking you tonight, are you calling on the name of Jesus when you're going through something? Are you calling on the one that saves? Are you calling on the one that heals? Are you calling on the one that delivers? Are you calling on the one that sets free? Who are you calling through, calling on when you are going through something? What I love about Christ is Christ is an example for us to emulate. Christ is telling us that it's okay, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. Jesus faced the greatest unknown, the hardest challenge of all, and that which was death. Christ had no experience with death, but he, he took it on with a confidence. He took death on uh, with faith and expectation that the loving God to whom he had entrusted himself would see him through the darkness and bring him out into the light. Understand this. Uh, this, uh, this statement was not a death conversation, nor uh, was it a, a death prayer. But in, it, but in fact, it was a prayer for life. Uh, it was a prayer both for the present life and it was a prayer for the afterlife. Christ was an example, so let this be a lesson to us. When we have done everything that we can do, when we find ourselves in a situation that there's nothing else that we can do, and the way ahead of, and the way ahead of us seems uncertain, and we didn't try all everything in our power, knowing that God loves us, and knowing that he will see us through the time ahead, we can pray, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a great example of when the potter has you on the wheel and when he's preparing you for your destiny and he's preparing you for your future and he's shaping you and he's molding you and he's pulling you and he's stretching you and he's twisting you. It may not feel good while the potter has you in his hands, but rest, but rest assured you're in the best place possible because the potter has his hands on you. You're in God's hands and that's the best place that you could ever be. When we deposit and entrust ourselves in our lives, in our future, in our destiny in God's hands, having done what we can, we can commit it all to him and enter into his rest from our works. How do we know that Christ made the right decision by him entrusting his soul into the hands of God? 
Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and 4 that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Revelation tells us in uh, the first chapter, verse 18, that I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys to hell and the and, and have the keys over hell and death. So this lets us know that Christ made the right decision by saying, Father, into, the, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And this needs to be our attitude. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. We know God of uh, Jesus made the right choice because he got it with all power over death, hell, and the grave. On today, Christ has all power over sickness. Christ has all power over our mind. Christ has all power over illness. Christ has all power over our finances. Christ has all power over everything concerning this world because he took on death. He took on the enemy and he won. He is undefeated. He is undisputed. He is our God. He is, he is the victor. And because of him, we too are victorious in Christ Jesus. What an example that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He took on death, but he got up on the third day. He rose again with all power in his hand. And because of him, we too have power as well. God bless you. And I pray that you've been blessed for tonight. All right. <laughs>